Hi, it's Tom here. Before we get into this week's podcast, I just want to let you all know that our book, The Year the World Went Mad, is back in stock by popular demand. This is our collection of our best articles from 2020, featuring all of your favourite spiked writers. We put it out first a few weeks back and it sold out in about three and a half days. So we've done another run for all those who might have missed out the first time. They're just £14.99 each and all proceeds go to Spiked to make sure we can keep bringing you our free and fearless content every day. Or if you want one of a limited number of copies that we have signed by Brendan O'Neill, once again, we're giving those away free to anyone who donates £50 or more to our Christmas donation drive. To find out more about both of those options, just go to spiked-online.com slash book. And once again, this is our final run. So make sure you get yours before they're gone. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Brexit negotiations, Millwall versus Black Lives Matter and the ongoing COVID crisis. The Brexit trade talks are struggling. For the UK, any deal must involve being free of EU rules. No one understates the challenges that lie ahead. I'm a bit more gloomy today. Is it all over, Prime Minister? There's now a strong possibility that we will have a solution that's much more like an Australian relationship with the EU. The Brexit negotiations are now going right to the wire. Boris Johnson went to Brussels this week to have dinner with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen to move the talks forward. But since the meeting, both have said that no deal is the most likely outcome. There are still said to be major differences over the so-called level playing field, fishing and governance. Johnson said this week that no government could accept the current offer on the table, particularly the EU's proposed ratchet clause, which would allow the EU to punish the UK for not conforming to future EU rules. The next deadline for the talks is on Sunday, but at least four formal deadlines have been passed already and the transition period does not legally end until the 31st of December. Tom, I mean, what have you made of quite a dramatic week, probably the most dramatic of this this stage of the negotiations? The crunch week of all crunch weeks, we were told. So as you say, it seems like this weekend really is the last point at which a deal could be signed. You've got Boris Johnson sounding much more bullish on the concept of no deal. We've got to take all of this with a pinch of salt, not least because of the fact that I'm old enough to remember when last weekend was supposedly the, you know, the final, final point in the road. So mm. the <laughs> ability of both sides to kick the can down the road is pretty clear. But really the dynamics are the same. They have been the same ever since the negotiations were given that kind of reset under Boris Johnson's leadership insofar as you have the EU, which isn't really treating us like a country that's trying to do a free trade deal with. It's treating us like a departing member state that it wants to continue to extend its its legal and regulatory writ over mm. into the future. And you've got the British government side, which nominally we can talk about how sincere or how much bluffing or fudging we think is actually going on behind closed doors, wants to ensure that any deal does not encroach upon our sovereignty and our ability to act. And most importantly, we shouldn't forget the ability for voters to hold our politicians accountable for 
areas of policy. And again, mm. what's interesting is what very technically is discussed as the level playing field issue, which again, as you say, its latest kind of iteration is this ratchet clause, is the ability of vast swathes of policy, economic policy, labour standards, environmental standards, for these things to be the subject of democratic contestation. I mean, there's so much we don't know. We won't really know what this deal looks like until it's potentially signed and then we can actually all pour over it. Given then it seems like, you know, particularly in Parliament, they'll just be bouncing to supporting it anyway. But still, the fundamentals are the same. Mm. And the standard that we need to hold this government to is, are you making good on what Brexit truly represented? Which is this question of control. And it's just in all of the very technical details that we're getting into recently, that remains the fundamental issue. It's the gap that exists between these two sides. And as I say, it's the standard that we have to hold the government to. So we will wait to see what happens. Ella? It's getting embarrassing now. We're talking on Friday afternoon and news has just broken that Boris Johnson has attempted to try and move negotiations in a better position by offering to go to Berlin and Paris to see Macron and Merkel and try and win them over. And not only did the European Union say you're not allowed to do that, but Merkel and Macron both said, we're not going to talk to you. So it's a petty picture at the moment, which I think, you know, you can laugh at that, but it actually shows how I think desperate the European Union is feeling about and the sentiment is about Brexit. As Tom says, this isn't about a trade deal. This is pretty much what the debate was in 2016. In many ways, we haven't moved from there, which is, will the European Union allow a member state to leave in its entirety? And what does that process of leaving do to the European Union? Because the squabbles over the provision of state aid or the rules around fisheries, while they might seem like small areas of policy, you know, at the heart of it, as Mick Hume wrote on Spiked this week, is still the question of who is in control. Is it the citizens of that nation state or is it the bureaucrats and ministers of the European Union. And so for me anyway, and I think for us as Brexiteers, it really hardens your resolve of and your sense that you were right to vote leave in 2016, because the European Union is obviously not capable of and not willing to succumb to the reality, which is that the British citizens voted for and wanted sovereignty and democracy. Because what does that say about the future of the European Union? I mean, if we can do it, others can do it. You can see that that's what's at the heart of the mm. whole panic. That's what these last few hours have come down to. And it's interesting because, you know, there are differences between France and Germany. You know, France has been way more hardline on fishing. And I think it's been interventions from the French that some reportedly say set back the deal a few weeks ago a little bit. And Germany probably stands to lose the most from no deal, particularly from, you know, tariffs on exporting goods to the UK. But still, you know, one of the factors that is often comes up in this in this discussion is, is not just that we have to deal with the EU, but the whole European political class's commitment to the EU is also a barrier here. You know, the fact that Macron and Merkel are not interested in having this discussion with Boris is, you know, shows that the commitment to the EU comes above all else, perhaps even above what you would see as like the national interest in there, mm. particularly in Germany's case. It's fascinating how in the earlier negotiations, negotiations over the withdrawal agreement, Ireland was the European country, you know, kind of central to that discussion. Ireland is now pleading with the rest of the other EU member states to try and break the logjam in some way. It says, you know, the deal's 97% there. And it's interesting how much has changed, you know, because 
we knew, for instance, that a lot of the attention given to Ireland last year and the year before was pretty phony. Standing up for Ireland's interests is nonsense because at the end of the day, they were using Ireland as a way to hammer British democracy. Now that Ireland doesn't play as big a role in this trade discussion, its its views have been sidelined. So you can see the way the, the EU has kind of used Ireland and now it's very clear it's just been sidelined again. And anyone who thinks the EU is going to stand up for their nation should should think again. Mm. And on that question, which Ella raises about the political importance of a proper Brexit not taking place and it not being allowed to be made a kind of democratic, let alone economic success, is so important regardless of what is their national economic interests at play across the EU27, because it is a signal to other, not European political classes, but European peoples Mm. to say to them, you shouldn't dare go for the door because otherwise terrible things will happen to you. And I think particularly if Britain can't leave the EU, the signal that sends is incredibly strong. You know, half in any way, not in the euro, a very large economy. If we can't do this, then the consequences of this for, again, people pushing for more democracy across Europe will be significantly damaged. And of course, the domestic picture as well, which is that if Brexit ends in some kind of fudge, as we've all feared it it will for some time now, the signal that will send will be really terrible insofar as, you know, even with such a historic demand for democratic accountability, national sovereignty to the ends of popular sovereignty, it's either kind of snuffed out or again, kind of buried in all of these technical means through which it isn't actually directly, properly implemented. Again, it's just going to create more demoralisation and take away any of that kind of momentum that we felt like we had over recent years towards properly democratising our politics. Because again, huge swathes of policy would just be things that we can't have any impact on whatsoever. And it's just been so striking in recent weeks how little people in the media and political class get it. Mm. You've got amongst the left and the Remainers this very bitchy and protracted argument about how they should never have you know, indulged in their second referendum plans, what they should have gone for soft Brexit, which yeah. as we all know isn't Brexit. So essentially the argument is we should have mugged off voters with something that's labelled Brexit but isn't, which mm. is again the idea that they think people would fall for that, let alone that that is actually what respecting the vote is for is, is interesting. And then you've got people on, on the Tory right and on the Tory libertarian side who are saying, why is state aid the issue that these talks are going to crumble over? Why would you make this issue something which is so important, which I think, again, reminds us that for, not exclusively, but for a lot of people on that section of the Brexiteer argument, they see Brexit as a kind of strategic question. You know, mm. it's about something about how you position yourself in the global economy, etc. This is about democratising the UK, and sending a signal that on the question of on any of these issues, they have to be democratically accountable and democratically contested. And the consequences of this failing or just being kind of brought to a halt are going to be pretty profound, not just here in Britain, but across Europe, which is why making sure this, this happens is more important than it's ever been. Sometimes it's important to take time to focus on ourselves, to do something that lifts us up and makes us feel better. One of my favourite ways to do that is by learning something new with The Great Courses Plus. This isn't just another streaming service. The Great Courses Plus is a credible source of information. With thousands of videos covering hundreds of topics, there are so many rewarding opportunities to learn. Why not learn about how to use mindfulness to manage stress and deal with anxiety? How to make your own pasta from a chef at the Culinary Institute of America? You can even get tips on how to train your dog from a pro instructor or learn techniques to become a better singer. What I love best about The Great Courses Plus are their courses on politics and history. 
I've started listening to George Orwell, A Sage for All Seasons. This course traces his journey from obscurity to becoming Britain's most influential writer of the past hundred years. And it's led by Michael Sheldon, Orwell's official biographer, whose work on Orwell was shortlisted for the Pulitzer Prize. There is so much more and something for everyone with The Great Courses Plus. You really have to explore it for yourself. And with The Great Courses Plus app, it's also easy and accessible. You can watch or listen anytime, anywhere in the world. So start your journey with The Great Courses Plus today and your future self will thank you. Sign up with our special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. When you go there, you'll get a 14-day trial with unlimited access for free. So go now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash spiked. For months now, football players have been taking the knee before kickoff in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Players have at various points worn BLM wristbands and have even had Black Lives Matter emblazoned on their shirts instead of their names. Sky Sports flashes the phrase Black Lives Matter before many of its ad breaks. But football fans have now been allowed back into stadiums under the new coronavirus guidelines and fans are starting to voice their displeasure. At the weekend, Millwall infamously booed players taking the knee, and since then, all hell has broken loose. Tom, what's been your reaction to this? It's been such a striking story, not least because it's been running for days and days and days and days now. I think because it really gets to grips with not the prejudices alleged of of Millwall fans booing people taking the knee, but the prejudices of the commentariat and all the people looking at this incident and just seeing a straightforward you know, case of ugly white working class racism. As you say, these supporters booed Millwall players taking the knee and the instant response was, oh, they must just be racist scumbags. There's no other Mm. justification for it. You know, forget the fact that if I'm right in saying over five of the last 10 years, Millwall as a club has picked black players as their player of the year. You know, ignore the fact that in the following game against QPR, when the Millwall players did a slightly less provocative, shall we say, display, unfurling this banner of their new kind of anti-racist campaign, that those people were applauded rather than booed. Ignore the fact that anyone with an ounce of seriousness and sincerity knows that Black Lives Matter capitalised is a very different thing to the uncapitalised version. The uncapitalised version is something that basically no one really disagrees with, apart from some scumbags at the fringe. Mm. But the campaign, the organisation, the capitalised version is something which has a lot of baggage with it. It's something that people see and they associate with people daubing racist on Winston Churchill's statue. Or if they've bothered to look at the slightly kooky website of the BLM UK group, plans to get rid of the nuclear family and all these different things. It's a completely different thing to what people are quite, in my view, disingenuously presenting as this is just a straightforward anti-racist statement. Mm. And I also think it gets to grips with one of these things around virtue signalling as well, which is to say that I think one of the things that annoys people about sometimes very ostentatious kind of displays of awareness raising about an issue, whether it's racism or whatever it is, is that there's often a kind of presumption on behalf of the institution or the celebrity, or in this case, the footballers who are doing it. It's almost projecting onto everyone else that they're just idiots. They don't know. Mm. Like the thing about virtue signalling is it kind of presumes that everyone else isn't virtuous it's just you who is distinguished by it so there's all these different things going on in it which completely understandably would rub certain people up 
the wrong way, but the swiftness with which this was just straightforwardly ascribed as a case of racism. Again, no one really bothered to really talk to these footballers. There was actually a statement put out by a fan site explaining why they felt like certain fans had taken that position. That was broadly speaking ignored. Mm. And it comes back to a point that we've we've talked about many times, which is unfortunately the kind of flip side of this new anti-racism, a baggage that has been attached to this new identitarian, quite divisive form of anti-racism or so-called anti-racism is that its foil or its presumed villain is always just like white working class idiots. And the thing about this case, it just perfectly fit that narrative, regardless of actually the facts of the matter. So it's just been, it's been striking how long it's run on, but I think it's just because not only does Black Lives Matter, but also the figure of this kind of unreconstructed white working class racist is so central Mm. (laughs) to this morality play that so many people in the media are playing out that it was almost always going to be this way, it felt like. It's reminded me of the fact that just after the statue of Edward Colston was pulled down that, you know, some artist created this counter statue of a fat white working class man, podgy, like, sprawling out of a bin. Yeah, wearing a string vest. Wearing a string vest, you know, all the kind of signals of class hatred were were there. And you think, I thought this was about racism, not... (laughs) Or about history. history. (laughs) Ella, your thoughts? I mean, obviously people have picked up on the fact that Millwall has a well-known history of racist incidents in the past. But rather than thinking, well, perhaps some of the people in the crowd who were booing we're doing it for that reason. But perhaps some of them are just ticked off by having to have various shows of political solidarity, whether it's Black Lives Matter or, you know, the poppy or singing the national anthem or all this kind of list of things that get nods to these days. They jump to the conclusion that all the fans were racist. But actually, I think the worst thing is the the changing nature of how taking the knee is understood because back when Colin Kaepernick took it, it was, you know, whether you agreed with it or not, it was definitely a political statement. And now it's framed as something that's just about being nice. It really is a kind of virtue signaling exercise. I mean, Gareth Southgate, when he was asked about what had happened at Millwall with the booing, he was really clear. He said that taking the knee should not be a political statement, that it's just a show of solidarity. And he was really emphatic saying it's not political. But I mean, (laughs) racism and the fight against racism is political. It is a political act. And if you wanted to take a stand by taking the knee or doing something else, it should be interpreted as a political act. Because when it starts to become something that's equivalent to wearing a poppy or singing the national anthem, you know, these very empty shows that we have that remain of kind of essentially doing the right thing, being nice, falling into line, then it loses all of its meaning. And on the flip side of that, you have people like Emil Neurer, who's the author of Pitch Black, who wrote an article in The Guardian shortly after the incident of booing, talking about the fact that, you know, the club should be shamed because it failed to recognise that this wasn't a political act, that it was just a show of solidarity and that the fans, really what the club should have done is tracked down the fans who were season ticket holders, use CCTV to track them and find out who they were and ban them. I mean, we are talking about banning someone for failing to or refusing to fall into line with Mm. a political statement. That's completely illiberal. What's the end point of this? I mean, I I don't particularly care whether people do take the knee or not. I certainly don't think it should be banned. And there's kind of a huge amount of hysteria going on in the conversation of this among other commentators and particularly on social media that anyone who sort of says that they might be a bit sick of Black Lives Matter 
with capital letters, shows of solidarity now is not just racist, but calling for it to be banned. You kind of want everyone to just relax a little bit and say, what is actually going on here? There's nuance in this discussion, which is that you can be both anti-racist and have a problem and be a little bit sick of the virtue signaling side of Black Lives Matter. At the same time, there are still racists that exist. You know, there's nuance in this discussion, but the response to it has been one of the most (laughs) nuanced things that I've seen in a long time. I don't actually see a problem with football being political. I mean, nobody Mm. should really object to, you know, Celtic fans supporting Irish nationalism or, you know, Barcelona fans supporting Catalan independence. That's, that's part of the culture of, of football and that's all to the good. And, you know, by the same token, football players taking the knee is completely fine in my view. But I think what's probably different about taking the knee and the kind of Black Lives Matter movement is that it has become institutionalized yeah. within the commercial aspect of football. You know, it's, it's a kind of top down thing. It was just pretty much decided by people in the FA, you know, in the broadcasters that they are going to be fully behind Black Lives Matter. And I think that's something completely different. That's not a grassroots opposition to racism. That is a kind of top-down cultural imposition in a way. Mm. And and I think that is kind of what is riling people. It, it's not that people are suddenly racist or something like that. It's that I think people just don't like being talked down to in this way. Exactly. It's not come from the fans whatsoever. Mm. And it's important to note that the embrace of Black Lives Matter by various of the sports broadcasters and the FA and virtually every team and all the rest of it was that it happened at a time where there were no fans in the stadium. Exactly. And as soon as they're allowed back in, you suddenly get a bit of tension. And I think that just demonstrates exactly as you say, Fraser, this is different. I think Ella raising the Kaepernick example is, is very interesting in that respect because again, when he was doing it, there was an element of provocation and kind mm. of, you know, danger. Now, he, from what I understand, it essentially ended up getting booted out of the NFL at the end of all of that. He was also embraced by a whole nother section of you know <laughs> the great and good and made a lot of money from nike and all the rest of it so he's not had a terrible time of it but nevertheless there was an element of sticking your neck out to some degree it's entirely different now you know you're going to get in trouble if you don't do these things yeah you're going to get invested by the fa if you know if enough of your fans actually start booing people who are taking the knee so the dynamic is completely different and it's definitely no mystery that all of this stuff came along in the absence of fans because there was no pushback to it. And I think that Ella's exactly right. I think the point is that football players should have free speech, but also football fans should have free speech. Yeah. And we shouldn't assume the worst about any of these people. You shouldn't assume that when someone's taking the of course that they're actually in support of some sort of mad insurrectionary Marxist movement that wants to, you know, decolonize everything and get yeah. rid of the nuclear family and raise everyone in villages or whatever it else is that, <laughs> that they claim to actually want to do. But at the same time, when you see people say, we know what this is about. And it's not just about anti-racism. It's about lecturing us. It's about hectoring us. It's about telling us not to hold attitudes that we don't hold in the first place. And they're going to be rubbed up the wrong way by that completely. Mm. And the failure to recognise that, I think, is really interesting. And this is just how football fans have started to be treated, you know, in recent years. The policing of fans is something that's gone on for a very long time. And again, it seems like it's very much a part of that, but just with this new element of BLM kind of culture war intensifying all of those trends to see football fans as the problem and as a kind of bigoted blob in all instances. Hi there, this is Andrew Doyle, writer, comedian and columnist for Spiked. If you're enjoying this episode of the Spiked podcast, then you really need to check out my podcast, Culture Wars. In this show, I try to get to the bottom of what's going on in culture by going beyond all the headlines, beyond the partisan bickering, while poking fun at all the insanity along the way. 
My guest this week is Peter Bogosian. Peter is an academic who has published widely in a wide range of domains. He is the author of How to Have Impossible Conversations with James Lindsay, and he joins me this week on Culture Wars with Andrew Doyle. Now, back to the Spiked podcast. The UK began its mass vaccination programme on Tuesday morning, becoming the first country to roll out the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. But while this has signalled the beginning of the end of the pandemic, daily cases in Britain still remain high and many parts of England, particularly London, could be facing harsher restrictions next week, just before the rules are relaxed again for Christmas. Wales is struggling with rising cases despite its uh, 17-day firebreak lockdown as well. Ella, let's talk a bit about the vaccine first and, and some of the response to it. What have you noticed? Well, I have to admit that on Tuesday when it was first given to Margaret Keenan about half six in the morning, I was listening to the radio and on the Today programme, they played this sort of compilation of everything that had happened throughout the year from the start of this pandemic with the waiting by Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers on in the background. And I was choked. I mean, it was it was actually really quite a wonderful moment. And they had interviews with Margaret and then William Shakespeare, this uh, <laughs> 81-year-old who was the second person to be vaccinated. And there was just a moment of genuine sense of, of victory and of feeling like you were, even though I've had nothing to do with the vaccine, feeling like you were sort of part of a, a collective process of moving on. It was a really wonderful moment. And I mean, within minutes, within sort of seconds, it was dashed because immediately after they had on the Today programme that little clip, they interviewed Matt Hancock, who really, I think, oh, maybe I'm cynical, but pretended to be choked and he later then sort of tried to squeeze out a tear on GMB. But he, <laughs> he spent about a few minutes talking about how great this was and then immediately shot all of our good feeling to hell and said, but the really important thing is that actually nothing is going to change. This doesn't signal a chance for anyone to loosen up, that there is no, you know, we're still got a long road ahead of us. And, you know, you might think, okay, all of that is fairly sensible just because a handful of elderly people have been vaccinated in Coventry doesn't mean we can all break out. But there was this real push by ministers who were interviewed throughout the day to make it very clear to people that actually while the vaccine was something to celebrate that life wasn't going to get any better because of it and there was a real shadow cast over it you had Patrick Vallance coming out a day or two later talking about the fact that even though we will hopefully by you know spring have enough of the population vaccinated to start changing the way we live for the better to go back to normal, that there would be lots of things about 2020 that would remain. So he was arguing that maybe face masks, maybe social distancing should be part of our new normal. And it was just really depressing. Mm. And it made me think why with such a feat of human innovation and really kind of a miracle actually of the speed at which the vaccine has come to us and the chances we have to really close the book on 2020 and not repeat it that there is so much remaining miserabilism about this and so much remaining safetyism almost fetishized about this, that there, there just is no delight in saying that actually we might be able to think of this as a, a, a blip and a bad dream mm. in our lives. And I think that tells you a lot about the way in which government is thinking about how to deal with the public after the vaccine. Tom? Now, talking about the remaining miserabilism, well, I've also been quite interested in 
amused by is the Remainer miserabilism about this mm. vaccine, which has been really, really interesting because throughout this pandemic, there's often been the claim leveled at Boris Johnson and people on the kind of Brexiteer side that they were risking putting public health beneath ideology. You know, there was this initial panic about not taking part in this kind of EU vaccination scheme when it was getting off the ground and all the rest of it. And yet the response to quote unquote V-Day from all of the usual suspects has been remarkable insofar <laughs> as it actually commits a lot of the same crimes. You had Fintan O'Toole who managed to squeeze an anti-Brexit <laughs> angle out of the vaccine news saying they had to go and ruin it, didn't they? Referring largely to the sometimes quite silly, but nevertheless pretty harmless kind of patriotic bump around which the vaccine rollout was sort of presented. Yeah. O'Toole even questioning whether or not it was a good idea to be the first one to roll out, you mm. know, which again seems to me to be putting ideology ahead of the rollout of the vaccine in a different kind of way. And it was just this really striking way in which there are so many people, because in the same way that so many people really wanted Brexit to go wrong, there was a lot of people in the sort of remaining chattering classes who really wanted our response to COVID to be as horrendous as possible, mm. you know, because it would it would vindicate them. It would vindicate them in their hatred of Boris Johnson, the hatred of patriotism, all the rest of it. Now, the response from government has been pretty horrendous, just not in the way that they tend to think that it has. But nevertheless, I thought that was that was really quite striking, was that even that kind of becomes part of the issue because so much of this is about politics, so much it comes with those kind of preloaded concerns, even to a situation where you had so many commentators almost echoing that Oxford academic who made a bit of a buzz online back in the late spring, I think, she said she didn't want Oxford to produce the vaccine because this would be too much of a basically a kind of patriotic, jingoistic hmm. boost to Britain, <laughs> which would vindicate all of the wrong people. So again, it's just there's so much politics in this, whether it's the kind of Ramoning classes still trying to get their jabs in, or it's this kind of broader tendency a lot of, in a lot of people in the expert class and the opinion forming set that people still need to be controlled people still need to be limited the new normal needs to continue on because either we can't be trusted or that's just a better society it's quite clear that all those more political kind of issues are still very much there and need to be taken up by the time we get to the end of the year pretty much everyone over the age of 75 will have been vaccinated assuming things go to plan that's massive that's something to really to celebrate, you know. So it is strange to see, A, the clinging on to the new normal, but also the idea that people are really taking objection to mild patriotism like V-Day and yeah. things like that, as if these phrases somehow dampen the amazing success of that. This is totally game-changing. And it is kind of shocking that by the end of the year, by that time when we will be massively, the, the fatality rate in Britain is going to be massively collapsed. It kind of is about Brexit because the EU will only have just have approved the use of the vaccine by then. So it's not just a couple of days. This is a matter of of life and death and it's not really been taken seriously in that way. It's 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 a very kind of strange moment we find ourselves in. You would think that some European politicians might pipe up about this and say, what's going on? Why aren't we getting it? Where's where's our <laughs> where's our share? The British have said it's safe. Do we not trust them? It's a very kind of odd moment to find ourselves in. Ella, did you want to come back? Well, I mean, the, the European Union hasn't exactly covered itself in glory this year. I mean, do you remember when we were talking about on this podcast about the, its treatment of Italy right when this first kicked off and the nature in which it responded to the initial kind of financial concerns around the pandemic? So, uh, you know, in terms of a kind of a block that acts efficiently with the collective good at heart, the European Union hasn't <laughs> hasn't showed itself to be able to live up to that claim. But 
On the issue of going back to the new normal, I mean, because this is the thing that I've really been tussling with and the pandemic in many ways has exacerbated wider trends of all types of things. But particularly, I mentioned the issue of safetyism because the thing we have to tackle now, I think, is this question of what is better, a society that's safe or a society that's free. And we've lived for months now with a prioritization of safety for an understandable reason. We don't want old people to die and we didn't want vulnerable people to die. But the question is, where does that then stop when that's not necessary and normal life resume? Because you've already got people talking about things like, well, if we can stop the number of people who catch the flu, then we should do that. If we can take measures to keep kids from spreading things to each other at school by keeping them apart, then maybe we should do that. There's even discussion about taking the positive things that we've learned from the pandemic and bringing them forward into 2021. And that's a really dangerous place to be, not just because the idea of us continuing to social distance and wear masks for another number of months is dystopian enough, but because if you have a reorganization of society around the idea of safety, then you limit so many things. I mean, there are so many things that we do and that we enjoy that are unsafe. And I'm not sort of talking about skydiving. I'm talking about, you know, getting in a car and driving, talking about going out for a drink. You know, many times in this podcast, we've talked about the fact that the sort of clamp down on drinking has more to do with a puritanical desire to curb people's ability to get pissed rather than fighting the pandemic. And people are talking about the fact that the curfews had a great knock-on effect of lowering the number of people turning up pissed in A&E. And so you have to really challenge this idea that safety is something that should always come first because you end up living incredibly sheltered and an incredibly antisocial life. So the vaccine's going to hopefully, hopefully, um, have this virus put down by the spring. You know, that, that is something to celebrate. But the underlying trends of the pandemic and the very, I think, dangerous antisocial trends that the lockdown has caused will not be defeated by a jab. Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider, or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.